Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning, dig back into this chapter together. But again, as I said earlier, let me just warn you, we need to resist the temptation that, uh, well, gee, we're getting back into Revelation, so now we're going to figure out how uh, end times and coronavirus and uh, all of that stuff, and uh, we're going to understand who the Antichrist is and all that kind of stuff. No, we're not. Uh, when we get through with the book of Revelation, Lord willing, however long that takes, uh, it will probably leave us with a lot more questions than we have answers. It's just the nature of the book. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4 verse 1. After this I look, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, carbon, or sardine. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, as we open this up, we pray. We need light from you. We need understanding from you. This is your word. So I pray you lead us in the truth, the working of the Holy Spirit, and taking your word. And as we dig into this, let us see your glory. Let us see the glory of Christ. Let us understand plainly our hearts before you, where we stand before you. We pray that you show us our sin, our disobedience. But in doing that, in your mercy, show us Christ. Show us a gracious Savior who stands willing and ready to save. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When we started this section in Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, we really dealt with the first part of chapter 4 as we were uh, beginning to uh, dig into the second vision of John and the, the question that was asked at the time as we started this section was how, how would or who would you say that God is? And I asked the question, you know, if you're at home and your neighbor comes over and knocks on the door and, 
and says, hey, you know, I know you're a Christian and I know you go to church and, you know, I've uh, been over to your house, I see some Bibles laying around and this or that. And I've just been wondering, had these questions about, you know, who is God? You know, how would you answer that? What would you say? I mean, particularly now. I mean, think about now. I would imagine, or at least I would hope so, that in the situation that we're in, when coronavirus and all of the mess that's going on with that, that, you know, there would be some people who would, who would at least be stopping and thinking, you know, what, what's going on, and at least maybe some of those questions would lead to a person thinking, and really maybe for the very first time in their life, seriously thinking about who is God. I mean, who is he? Is he some mean, uh, you know, God who has thrown this coronavirus on us and uh, why, you know, he's just, he's mean, he's ugly, all he does is punish and we don't obey him. He jumps on us and pounces on us and he punishes us. There's some people that view God that way. They see him as this mean, killjoy, doesn't want you to have any fun, doesn't want you to have any pleasure, and he's just always hurling these viruses at us when we're bad, and he's always hurling judgments on us when we're bad, and so, but that some people see him, and if you were to ask some people who is God, that, that might be what they would say, but that's not what the Bible reveals about him. I mean, there is a side of him in which he is just, and he's righteous, and he deals with sin, and he takes sin serious, but, but that's not... That's, that's, that's not the full picture of what we see in a loving, merciful, gracious God who, yes, takes him seriously. But in his glory and in his majesty, he saves. He saves. And he's done it beautifully in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not let us all look. He sent his son to die on a cross, was buried and raised the third day. His son shed his blood for our sins. And it's in him that we have the forgiveness of our sins. And so it, it is sort of an interesting question. You know, how would, I, how would I explain to somebody who God is? Now, there used to be, a long time ago, and uh, in some circles they're still used, but the churches used to use what was called a catechism. In fact, in the early days of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the early Sunday school literature was actually a catechism. And it was a catechism that was known as Keech's Catechism or the Baptist Catechism. And these catechisms were questions and answers in which you would take people through and teach the Christian faith. And, and it was used a lot with children. Um, John Broadus, one of the early uh, founders of the Southern Baptist Convention, had put together a catechism. And his first question in his catechism to children, it was called a catechism for babies. And it was, it was this question and answer to teach children the faith. His first question starts with, who is God? And that's where he starts. And his answer is, he's the only being. He's the only being that has always existed. He is the creator and preserver of all things. That's how broad his answer. In Keech's Catechism, or the early Baptist Catechism, it actually comes in question seven. Who is God? And the answer that comes there is, uh, actually the question is not, not who is God, but the question in the Catechism is what is God? And the answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So, you might pull out an old catechism and say to your neighbor, well, let me show you what this says. And there were all these scriptural proofs for that, uh, backing up the answer from scripture. Or you might, you might go to the Bible, and you might say, as we, we talked about before, you might start with the Bible. You might start with, you know, well, God is love, and turn to 1 John 4, 16, God is light, turn to 1 John chapter uh, 1, verse 5, God is spirit, John chapter 4, verse 24. You might even go into God's his actions. You know, God is the creator. Uh, he's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. I mean, those may be areas that you go in and try to explain who is God. But the bottom line is this. And this is the point that we made as we open this passage up. Whatever you do, you are going to rely on what God has revealed in his word. We're going to draw on what God has revealed in His Word. And so, I know Him through His Word. I know Him 
as the Spirit of God leads us into the truth of who He is, and then understanding what He's done for us in Christ. And so we would draw on what God's revealed in, in, in His Word. Now, the temptation would be, and this is the one thing we have to avoid in, 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 in trying to answer the question, trying to understand who is God. It's a beautiful song. Uh, indescribable. Right? It's a beautiful song. Indescribable. Let's talk about the very nature of God. It's indescribable. How do you describe it? So we have to avoid the temptation of trying to describe God. Right? He's indescribable. And this is what we're going to see as, as we move and shift into the second vision from John. We're going to see that God is transcendent. He's not like us. He's above us. That's what that word means. The transcendence of God. He's not like us. He's above us. He's not faced with the limitations that we're faced with as his, create, as his creation. He's the creator. We are the creation. He's separate from his creation. And yet, we can't lose sight of the fact that he's personal. He's personal. This one who's, who's indescribable, this one who's separate from his creation, yet he's personal, and he's come to us. He's come to us in his word. He's come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can't lose sight of that. And if we're going to know him, which we can know him, we're going to know him on his terms. Now, Revelation 4, as I've mentioned, it, we, we are now into the second vision of John, and i Take just a second, and uh, this, this book opens in chapter 1, verse 1, with the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a revelation, the apocalypse. Let me just say this about apocalyptic literature, because chapter 4, we get into the symbolism. Revelation is full of symbolism, and you can't press the symbolism too far. We try to get behind the symbolism, and we try to understand, okay, what's being communicated to us, but we can't press it too far. It's the same way when Jesus taught the parable. And a parable is just something, a story that's thrown alongside a truth in order to help illustrate that truth so that we can understand that truth. And when you get to Jesus' parables, if you press every detail of a parable, you come up with some wild, strange interpretations of parables. And the same thing can happen with the Revelation. The symbolism that's there in this book, this apocalyptic literature, the symbolism that's there. If we press every single detail and try to find all sorts of things in this, then, then we're going to find all sorts of black helicopters everywhere in the book of Revelation. And that's not what John's communicating. It's a revelation of Christ. It's a revelation of Him. It's a revelation from Him. And central to this book is the majesty and glory of God, and that's what chapter 4 takes us in the second vision. And in reality, chapter 4 and 5 set the stage for the rest of the book. And chapter 4 and 5 go together. In chapter 4, there's this vision of the majesty and glory of God. And then chapter 5, he shifts into, at the beginning of the second vision, he shifts into redemption. God has saved his people. So you see the glory of God, and then you see what he's done in Christ, and you see the redemption. Now this book opened with that prologue of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, servants the things which must soon take place. And as we open this book, the temptation sometimes in the book of Revelation is also, well, we've we got a couple options here with Revelation. Either everything in Revelation is past. Or everything in Revelation will push it all to the future. I'll deal with that in just a, just a quick bit in chapter 4. Or it's a mix of both. He's dealing with an immediate situation. Yeah, Revelation is dealing with an immediate situation. Dealing in an immediate context. It has application. There are things that deal with the future. There are things that haven't happened yet. There are things that have happened already. The central figure of all this is Christ and God. And so he opens this book with this great vision of Christ. And then there's the letters to the churches, the seven letters to the churches that we went through and looked at each church. Those are not the churches, I don't believe, are representative of, his, you know, of, of different stages of church history. So you know, some would say you know, each church represented a certain part of church history. We're in the Laodicean age now. I didn't think that. They were, they were little churches. They were written. There were messages to these churches, and they have application to us. And so all of that's the first vision. 
Revelation unfolds in these four visions. It's one way you can look at the book of Revelation, is that it unfolds in these four visions. Well, chapter 4 begins the second vision. The first thing, there's two things in chapter 4. The first thing in chapter 4 is the setting. There's the setting of what he sees. And this is how he starts in the second vision, in the setting. He says, after this I looked. Now, if you notice, there's two after this. We've dealt with this in the previous message. I just need to point this out. After this, I looked and behold a door and standing open in heaven, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, behold. This is the first thing that he sees. Behold, a throne in heaven. It's the first thing that he sees. So the, after this, there is an interpretation of this that would say, particularly the second after this, after John is called up into heaven. And, and apparently he is in some trance-like state here. And the second after this, some would say, well, everything from that point and this point in the book of Revelation is all future. So the after this, John being called up into heaven is symbolic of the church being raptured. And then we go through and we see everything else that's happened in the book of Revelation. Um, you see the, the tribulation period, you know, 4 through 19. And then you have chapter 20, which is the millennial reign of Christ. And then the end. I don't think that just doesn't fit the context. We've dealt with that before. The after this is just next in sequence. This is the first vision, here's the second vision, and here's the next thing that he sees in sequence. Well, he's going to see several things here. He's going to see several things. And again, immediately he's in the Spirit. He's in the Spirit. And it must be that he's in some trance-like state as he sees something that's really indescribable. He sees the very throne room of God. The glory, the brilliance of God, the majesty of God. And that's the first thing that he notices as he looks. And there's this throne. There's this throne. Now John's going to John's going to try to describe it the best way that he can. And understanding that this is the, this is God's word. So as John sees this. And John writes this, he's drawing upon everything that he possibly can in his limited thinking to try to convey what he's seeing. I can imagine seeing this and then being asked, okay, now, here, communicate this to people. But what's behind this, we have to understand, and this is true of all the Word of God, every single book from Genesis to Revelation. There were human authors, and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they were moved and they would write. But yet, in that is the operation of God in giving us His Word through the working of the Holy Spirit and preserving for us His Word. So at the end of the day, these are the very words that God wants us to have to try to wrestle with understanding His glory. This is what God wanted us to have. It's not like, you know, John says, well, gee, I, I don't know, let me see, I, no, I, that's not good, let me, let me pick this and let me pick that. And it, 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 he's writing what God wants us to have in understanding His glory. And it's an amazing thing that John sees. So the first thing, again, as he sees this, he looks. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Here's this throne that he sees. Now, I think you understand immediately. Well, it's hard for us, though, but I think you understand throne. Right? It's not a, it's not a, a, a lazy boy recliner. John doesn't see in heaven, uh, you know, a dining room chair. He doesn't see in heaven a love seat. See, that would communicate one thing, right? You see a lazy boy chair, a recliner, and remote control, and a big screen TV. That communicates one thing. Now, I know it's hard for us because we, we're not under a monarchy. So it, it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand the significance of throne. But throne is significant here. 
But you've got to remember the context where what John's dealing with and the political context in which he's writing, it's the Roman Empire. Rome would understand the throne. And who sat on the throne? Caesar sat on the throne. And no one dared question Caesar. So the political power of the day was the Roman Empire. And the head of the Roman Empire, the head of that political power, the one when people would see the throne and see Caesar... They would think total power, unlimited power, all power. No one questioned. So what John sees is a throne. Now that's right out of the bat, that's communicating something to us. And it's not just any throne, but it's the very throne room of God he is seeing into heaven. You know, Stephen, when he was stoned, He's being stoned and he looks up and he sees and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of God. Beautiful symbolism there. Paul, he, he talks about being caught up into the third heaven. The third heaven being the dwelling place of God. That's what John is setting. He's setting the stage here for us to understand where he's taking us is not a vestibule. Where he's taking us is not the front porch. It's not the back porch. Where he's taking us is in the very presence of God. And there is his throne. Because that's the first thing that he sees. Behold, the throne. The throne's going to be mentioned ten times in this chapter. So you have to get the picture here that this is central. It's going to be mentioned ten times, this throne. There, there are two other times when other thrones will be mentioned. But ten times this throne is mentioned. And he sees the very throne room of God. I want you to keep your finger here. And I want you to go to the book of Ezekiel. We'll see as we go through the book of Revelation. There are a couple of Old Testament prophets that figure largely into the book of Revelation. Ezekiel will be one of them. Daniel will be another one. But I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. This is what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1. In verse 22, there's this, again, this vision that Ezekiel has in, in, in Ezekiel 1. In verse 22, he's talking about over the heads of the living creatures, there was like the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings stretched straight, stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings over its body. In verse 24, he says, and, I, and, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the almighty and sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. Now listen to verse 26. This vision that Ezekiel's having. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. You see Ezekiel seeing this throne. He's seeing the very throne room of God. He's seeing the very glory, the brilliance of the glory of God. And Ezekiel says, There was the likeness of the throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, and closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. What's that a reference to? Rainbow, right? Now hang on to this image, because you're going you're gonna to see some similarities in what, what John sees. So he sees the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of, uh, like on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of lightness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. 
Ezekiel sees this. Ezekiel sees this. Isaiah saw it. Isaiah chapter 6. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 6. We're probably a little more familiar with the Isaiah passage than the Ezekiel passage. But Isaiah sees this in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is what, this is what Isaiah writes for us. Isaiah says in verse 1, chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken off that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. See, Ezekiel sees it, Isaiah sees it, and when we come to Revelation chapter 4, this is what John, John's about to give us his understanding of what he's seeing in the symbolic language of seeing the very throne room of God, the majesty, the brilliance, the glory of God. I mean, he's talking about a tall task. We've got to try to understand some of the symbolism here, and I think we can understand some of it. But what's behind it is crystal clear. What's behind it is crystal clear. So, this is what he says. He sees the throne. At once I was in the Spirit, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So there's a throne, but it's not an empty throne. What he sees is one seated on the throne. I don't think it, 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 it's much of a leap to understand who's sitting on the throne. This is God sitting on the throne, right? I mean, it's, it's his throne room, it's his throne, and there's one sitting on the throne. And guess what? It's not Caesar sitting on the throne. It's not Caesar sitting on the throne. Nor is it any other man sitting on this throne. This is the creator sitting on this And so what he says about this, he who sat there, this is, his, this is him trying to convey what he's seeing. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, Carmen, or Sardis. This jasper stone. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I it, it, again, understand, this is God's word. This is what God wants us to see here and try to understand. But in my mind, if I'm trying to describe something I'm seeing like this, stones usually don't come into my mind. Right? I mean, if you're seeing something glorious, now you're into jewelry, you might think of stones. You might think of something. But at least in my thing, if I've seen something glorious and brilliant, I usually you know, say, hey, wow, that's like, a, that's like an onyx stone. That's just not part of my thing. But this is what God communicates to us through, through John. This jasper would have been probably some type of oval, some type of diamond. Now, keep in mind, diamond at the time would, would be uncut. It's not nice, clean, cut diamonds like we have today. But the idea behind it seems to be this white, it's shining. And this is what Ezekiel says, this brightness that was there. And then the Sardis stone was red. It came from the Sardis, it came from the area of Sardis, one of the churches that we dealt with earlier. So, so it was this red stone. So there, there's this jasper, there's this Sardis, and then he also says that around the throne was a rainbow. You remember Ezekiel? There's a rainbow. Now, Ezekiel likened it like the one after it rains. But what John is seeing here is not the arch rainbow. We've had rain like crazy, right? And after a storm, isn't it beautiful just to see the rainbow? 
And what was, the, what was the rainbow? The rainbow was put there by God, and it was a promise, right? Every time you see a rainbow, we, we're reminded of the promise of God, the faithfulness of God. I will not flood this world again, right? It's a beautiful reminder of the gracious love of God. And when we see that rainbow, that's what it should remind us of. It's unfortunate that the rainbow's been hijacked these days, right? I won't go any further detail. But the rainbow... But this is not an arch. This is like a halo. This is the description that he's giving. This jasper, this sardin, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Again, another stone here. So this, this rainbow, this halo, this, this just screams at us as John opens trying to Describe, trying to convey what he's seeing. It just screams at us the majesty, the brilliance of what he's seeing. That's what's behind this. We can't push the symbolism here of the stones too far. We can speculate about some things about them, and there may be some good speculation. But what's being conveyed to us is that when John in this trance sees this throne room of God, it's not like anything he's ever seen before. It's not like anything of this earth. It is brilliant. It's spectacular display of the glory of God. You know, Paul tells... Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, talking about God, he says this, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. See, that right out of the bat, right out of the gate, right off the bat, what we've come to understand is God is not like us. Caesar's throne doesn't look like this. You go into the Oval Office, and the Oval Office doesn't look like this. It may overwhelm you with the history of that office, right? But I promise you, when you walk in there, you're not blinded by transcendent glory and majesty and brilliance. Do you see the throne room of God? Then you are. And the response from seeing this, the response from Ezekiel, the response from Isaiah, what will be the response? Well, we've already seen the response from John in seeing this is to fall on their face before this brilliance. To fall on their face before this glory. Well, there's another thing that he sees. He sees the throne. There's one seated on the throne and in an appearance of jasper, sardin, around the throne, this halo, this rainbow, and the appearance of emerald. And then verse 4, here's another thing that he sees. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So in the world of these 24, these 24 thrones... Apparently there's some type of heavenly beings, these 24 thrones, these 24 elders. I mean, who in the world is this? I don't have time to go through all the interpretations of this. And there are plenty of interpretations. People have tried to explain this in so many ways. But I will give you two of the main ones. One is an older interpretation. This, is, this goes all the way back, early in the history of the church. And the oldest is that these 24 thrones, these 24 elders represent the total, it's the total representation of the people of God. So you have 12 Old Testament, 12 New Testament, right? 12 thrones, 12 thrones, 24. And so the oldest understanding of this is that it's the total representation of the people of God. Somehow as John sees this, then if this is correct, then what he's seeing is a representation of all of God's people throughout all of history. And there they are, represented in these thrones and these elders. Another more popular, or I won't say more popular, but another mainline interpretation of this is that, no, it's actually angels. And what he's seeing is actually angels. These are some type of high-order heavenly beings. And we see the white clothing here. If it is, if it is representation of the totality of God's people, then, then you understand this white clothing, this white raiment, is it the righteousness of Christ? We've dealt with this earlier. We'll deal with it again in the book of Revelation. Or is it the dress that's given to overcomers? 
you've overcome. The marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, the bride, she's dressed, she's given fine linen that's bright. The implication is that that's probably white. The church of Sardis in chapter 3, verse 5, if you overcome, I will give you white garments. So that could be it. And also we understand, too, in places, angels have white garments. They appear and they're in shining white garments. So it could be the totality of the people of God represented there, or it could be a high order of angels that's represented there around the throne. And then the next thing that he sees here, as he sees this around the throne in verse 4, 24 thrones, seated on the thrones with 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then the next thing that he sees here is, is almost like this terrifying sight. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So, as he's conveying what he's seeing, there's also this sense of this presence of power and the lightnings and the thunders, I think immediately would, would take their minds back. As he's writing this, and those who would be reading this, immediately I think their minds would go back to one place. Exodus chapter 19. I think that's where their minds would go. Because that's a place where we do see God's presence and we do see thunders and lightnings and so forth. And this is what we read in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, this is Mount Sinai. Moses meets with God. Verse 16 of Exodus 19 says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp tremble. They're scared to death. God's coming. God's presence on Mount Sinai. And you know what happened, historically, what happened on Mount Sinai. Moses receives the law. God comes down, gives Moses the law. They know that Moses is up there. All that happens, crazy stuff happens during this time. But there's a very thick cloud on the mountain, very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand in front of the mountain. They're standing before this mountain. And on this mountain, thunderings, lightning. You know what a really, really bad storm looks like? I love to see a really powerful thunderstorm. I do. I like to see it from distance, but it's just something about the majesty and the power of hearing that rumbling, shaking your clothes, you know, and, and the crack of lightning, and just see the power that's there. I mean, that's the image. That's what's being, the image that's being created here in our minds. Israel's seeing this. And then verse 17, it says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and on Mount Sinai was wrapped, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up and Moses, and the Lord said to Moses, get down there, go down, warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look to look and many of them perish. So let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. You're going to get close to this and you need to consecrate yourself. Let the priests do it. Lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Zion. For you yourself warned us, say, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told him. Now, this is what I think. When John mentions this, and he's seeing the throne, and he's seeing lightnings, thunderings, and this, this, this awesome display of power, their minds would have gone back to that, Exodus 19. And what's being communicated in Exodus 19? You just don't approach God in any other way. 
You see, there he is. John's seeing it, caught up in this. He's seeing it. This glory, this scene of these, these beings that are around the throne, and he's seeing this lightning, and it, it has to be screaming at us. He's transcendent. In one sense, he's unapproachable. On our own. We don't treat him flippantly. We don't treat him casually. You know what's sad? As you look at what's happening in a lot of the modern church today, there's no sense of this awesomeness and separateness of God. We, we're, we're, in some ways, we're way too familiar with him. And we treat him casually, flippantly. While there's this scene, this awesome presence of God, he's, he's distant. He's also distant. He's unapproachable, at least casually. If we're going to approach him, we're going to come to him. See, when I think of this, I think of a scene like what John's seeing, and I think of a scene like Exodus, and trying to understand what's being communicated to us. You know where my mind goes? My, my, my mind goes to Queen Esther. And here's what happened with Queen Esther. Remember she's told... You gotta go in there, you gotta plead with the king. You gotta say you people are about to be wiped out. You need to go and uh, it was her uncle Mordecai. You gotta go. And she says, you know, I can't just go into the presence of the king. Nobody goes into the presence of the king. You gotta be invited in the presence of the king. If you rush into the presence of the king, you get your head cut off. And Esther's like, I can't do this. And, and then finally, you remember that great scene there? And finally she says, Okay, I'm going. And if I perish, I perish. She approaches the king. And you remember what happened? Beautiful scene. He lifts the scepter out to her. And that was an acknowledgement that you're welcome. Come. You see, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. God's unapproachable. Distant. In other words, he's not like us. He's not part of our creation. He's transcendent. All of that stuff's there. But he's approachable through Christ. I come through Christ. Well, he's not through yet. He's not through yet because he sees something else strange trying to understand this. After the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, then there's verse 6 and before the throne there was. Uh, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I mean, what is the sea of glass here? Like crystal, is it clear? I mean, there's all kinds of, again, all sorts of interpretations about this sea of glass. You know, is it clear? Is it all-seeing? Is that what it's representing? Is it the holiness of God? Because it's clear, it's pure. Some have even said, well, no, sea, sea represents chaos. And so... What is, what is before this is God, John seeing his throne, he's looking, and then he's seeing a world in chaos. Then he sees this, verse 6, or, or the, the second part of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, day and night. They never cease to say, this is a hymn. Here comes a hymn. And it's one of five hymns in chapters four and five. In other words, now we're entering into worship. And it's one of five hymns that appear here. In chapters 4 and 5. What's interesting is you look at the hymns. The first two are directed towards God. The next two are directed clearly towards Christ in chapter 5. And then the last hymn that's there, it's directed to both of them. And what's interesting is you see these hymns. And these hymns will appear throughout the book of Revelation. The size of the choir grows and grows and grows and grows. And so here you have these four, as John describes them here, 
lays four living creatures full of eyes, all seeing, all knowing, seeing everything. And then the first living creature like a lion, I can't tell you the number of interpretations of this. People have said, oh, this represents this, this represents that. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said, well, it's representing the four Gospels. The lion is John, the book of John. The ox is the book of Luke. The man is Matthew. And the eagle is Mark. But again, we can't press the symbolism too far. But I think we can see some things on the surface here. The first creature, like a lion, king of the beast, right? I mean, we're, we're dealing with throne, king. Maybe something in connection with that. The second creature, like a calf, an ox, maybe domesticated servant here. I mean, you know, you domesticate an ox and you use it as a servant. Servant That may be one thing. Uh, the third creature, like a man, head, intelligence, you know. Um, fourth creature, flying like an eagle, deity, this eagle. You think of, you know, this great symbol maybe of deity. Whatever it is, this is where it ends in the last thing that he sees. They are worshiping. They are worshiping. And it's clear this is where it ends in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around them, and then day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Doesn't that echo Isaiah? Holy, holy, holy. Now, it could be. Some have said, well, this is, this is him looking at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know. It doesn't say that. Isaiah doesn't say that at all. I, I tend to think it's more of emphasis here. If you say holy, that's one thing, right? If I go holy, holy, that's one thing. If I go holy, 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 it's emphasis here. It's for emphasis here. It's sort of like it's saying holiness to the nth degree. And this is what they're doing. They're worshiping. They're praising. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him and lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. You see the same response and seeing this being in the very presence of God is not jumping up and high-fiving and telling jokes and slapping each other on the back and saying, wow, look what we've done. We've made it. No, being in the very presence of God is falling on your face. Isaiah did it. Ezekiel did it. John does it. And this is what we see here in this worship scene. 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. He's eternal. He lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, here comes another hymn. And this hymn is directed towards God. Again, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you. You alone are worthy of this worship and praise. You see, as you work your way through this and the throne appears first, then it becomes very clear who's sitting on it. And then it becomes very clear who's the focus here. The focus is not all this wild stuff that's around it. The focus is not the stones, the rainbow, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and all that's going on. And that's where we tend to spend most of our time, trying to figure that stuff out. Because we think if we figure that stuff out, we can find some secret to the book of Revelation, right? And oh, I've got the key to the book of Revelation. And that's not what's being communicated. What's being communicated, and John trying the best he can, using symbolic language, what's being communicated is God's God, we are not. And there's a brilliance, there's a glory here that's not of this earth. And the response to that is worship. <coughs> That's the response. The response to that is worship. What was Thomas's response when Christ appeared to him? You remember when he appears to him? His response was worship. What's his response if he appears right now? I don't know, wherever you are, let's say you're, you're sitting here in your living room, wherever, I don't know, and all of a sudden there's the, the appearance of the glory of God. What's going to be your response? Well, one thing when you 
pick yourself up off the floor. And your eyes pop back into your head. You come to some of your senses. Your only response is going to be to worship. It's going to be to worship. And when you worship like that, then everything else gets pushed out of the way, doesn't it? Everything else gets pushed out of the way. I don't read here, and I don't read in chapter 5, that John was interrupted by a text message. Now, I know, they didn't have cell phones. But you get my point? I don't read here that John was interrupted. There was a knock on the door, and John said, oh, let me put this aside, let me go do it. No, John's so caught up in this. There were no interruptions in this. And what a scene. Man, what a scene. The vision of God. Now, chapter 4 is preparing for chapter 5 because this is God. Here's God. And in chapter 5, this is what he's done. This is what he's done in redemption. And the focus is going to shift and we're going to see Christ. We're going to see the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God is God. He's separate, transcendent. He's the creator. He's not like us. And we don't do God any favors by trying to tame him. This is, this is a problem that we have. We want to tame him. Oh, the coronavirus. Oh, well, we want to start making excuses for God. Well, this can't be God, and this can't be God behind it, and this can't be this. And Oh, our God, he, he's not, you know, mean, bully kind of God. And, and we do him no favors by trying to tame him. We present him as he's presented himself to us in the scriptures. And we let God defend himself. And it's sad to see, and in times like this, it's sad to see in some quarters, this maybe out of good intentions. But well, we, we want to we try to tame him so that the world doesn't look at him and think, oh, he's all mean. He's all this. You see, God is God, but yet he's personal. See, this is the other thing. We can't lose sight of the fact that he's personal. He reveals himself. He's revealed himself this way to John. He's revealed himself to us in Christ. He is this. He's unapproachable in certain ways. He is approachable through Christ. And that he's revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we come to Christ, then then we can approach him. You remember when he dies, the veil is written to. You remember that? In this earthquake, the veil is written to. And, and what represented the very throne room of God in the temple, the very holy of holies, that very place is now wide open through the death of Christ, through his shed blood. It is now wide open. Access to this, access to this God who sits on this throne is wide open through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know Him. He's revealed Himself to us in Christ. The one who died on the cross is buried, raised the third day. We turn from our sin, put our faith and trust in Him. Look, we may miss a lot in this coronavirus. We've already missed a lot, right? But we may miss a lot, especially in trying to understand what's behind the scenes here and trying to understand this and try to understand, you know, that. And we've got questions about this and we've got questions about that. We may miss a lot with that. Even though the histories of this thing are written, we may still miss a lot. We may not fully understand what all is going on here. We might even lose some things. In other words, life may not go back to normal. It may not. But we must not miss the glory and majesty of God in this. We can't miss that. Because if we miss that, we miss it all. We have nothing if we miss that. We can't miss the glory and majesty of God. We can't lose our sense of worship of this one who is so holy. See, that's my greatest fear in this. I'm thankful for this technology. I'm thankful that, you know, I'm standing up here doing this, and you're at home, or a few people here, but I'm thankful for that. But my greatest fear in this is that we're going to be so tempted to let this be a substitute for worship. 
It's not. It's temporary. We can't lose our worship of this majestic one who sits on the throne. If we do, then what we're going to end up with is a form of godliness. That's all it's going to be. It'll be a form of godliness. Uh, nothing of substance of it. Uh, we'll profess to know him. Yeah, we'll go around professing to know him, but we'll deny uh, him by our works. And I guess what, at the end of the day, as we look at this, and we look at chapter 4, and we see the majesty of God, we cannot miss, and this is where chapter 5 is going to take us, but we cannot miss the majesty of God in Christ. Coronavirus didn't take him on his throne. Coronavirus invaded our lives. Right? But it didn't invade the throne room of God. And it didn't take him off his throne. We can't miss the glory of God. And we can't miss the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you miss that, you miss it all. You have nothing. But if you'll turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Christ alone, because he shed his blood for our sin, he died in my place, he was raised the third day. And there's an invitation. This is what's beautiful. This is what's beautiful. What do you think about this? what we see? What John's trying to describe? There's an invitation from this very throne room. There's an invitation from this very throne to you personally. Come to me. Come to me. But you're going to come on my terms. You need to come through Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Transcendent, yet so personal. Come. Just come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word, and your word is challenging. It is. We, we, we want to understand and try to understand. Lord, a passage like this, and as we Continue on in the book of Revelation. What a, what a scene. What another marvelous scene as we're still in, in heaven in chapter 5. But your glory. I pray you help us never, ever, ever lose sight of it. Help us never, ever get over it. And again, it was sung earlier. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his face. And the things of this world, coronavirus included, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you for... Uh, being with us today uh, will be Wednesday night, 6.15, uh, prayer meeting, uh, ladies' Bible study, you should be getting an invitation. Uh, I know there was, there was a little uh, problem with password last week, but uh, I think we've got that straight. So uh, you'll get an invitation. All you have to do is click on the link, put in the ID and the password, and join that on Zoom. Uh, that'll be Tuesday night at 5.30, but you should be getting an invitation uh, this afternoon. Um, the newsletter will be going out this week, so look for that in your emails. Again, if you're not getting emails, it means we don't have your email address. Or if you're not getting, we might have the wrong email address. So please let us know. Uh, email us. Um, and if you want to go back, you want to catch up on the book of Revelation, uh, those sermons are at sermonaudio.com. And in the next couple of days, all of those sermons will be on our YouTube channel as well. So uh, you can go back, catch up. But uh, Lord be with you. I want to read to you. We, we were doing 
we're doing a closing, sort of a benediction. And uh, as we close, let me just read this to you. Uh, we were saying this together as a church, and it comes from the very last verse of 2 Corinthians in uh, chapter 13. And this is what I want to leave you with. We love you, and stay safe. Uh, hopefully this, this, you know, we keep saying that week by week. I mean, hopefully it's going to come to the end soon. But stay safe. Um, take care of yourself and so forth. But I want to leave you with this as we sign off today. All right? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.